You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. Um, we're going to fly through 44 through 50 today, but there's, there's one more Genesis sermon, so it's not quite over yet. <clears throat> this is our third Advent Sunday, and we're going to continue looking at the good news of Jesus, because that's it's the only reason I'm up here, <laughs> through the lens of Joseph and Judah. So you'll know the Joseph story, the robe of many colors, sold into slavery in Egypt, etc. And Judah, his brother, is also one of the main characters of that story. And we're going to look at the gospel, the good news, through, through that. Now, this is Advent Sunday. Uh, it's one of four. And Advent is just the old church word for coming. It's the coming. And so Advent is this four-week-long season of longing. While we look back at the first coming of Christ and we look forward to the second coming of Christ, where Jesus comes back and restores everything, reconciles all things to himself. And that's, that's a gift that only Jesus can bring, that kind of reconciliation. So that's what Advent is really about. And last week, that was the second Advent Sunday, we looked at, at Judah in the story and the gift of redemption that Judah shows us about Jesus. How in Christ, we are redeemed, we're bought back, we're ransomed from uh, sin and death. And then we can be free and full of joy in Christ. That was last week, redemption. This week, we're going to talk about what redemption gets us. And that's reconciliation. So, let's read from Genesis. We're going to read from three chapters, uh, starting in 44. And uh, they'll be on the screen. If the screen freezes because the computer's been glitchy this week, uh, I'll announce the texts when I'm changing. Um, but you can read along however you like. Genesis 44, verse 30. As you're turning to 44:30, let me set the scene. We're jumping into the story. Sorry, let me fix this. We're jumping into the story where uh, Joseph has not revealed his true identity yet. He's still, um, you know, kind of hiding from his brothers in a sense. And uh, Joseph has demanded that the brothers, that his brothers leave their youngest brother in captivity with him and return to the father. And so now Judah stands up and bravely pledges his life for Benjamin's. He says, I'll stay, take me captive, even if it means my life, and let the boy go. For how can I return to the father without the boy? That's where we're jumping in now. Genesis 44, verse 30. Judah said to Joseph, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to the father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Now flip to chapter 46. We'll read the first seven verses. So Israel, that's the father, otherwise named as Jacob. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Three more verses from verse 28. Israel had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Thanks be to God. So when Judah offered himself as a ransom, two things happened in the course of a few chapters. First, the brothers were reconciled to one another for the first time in decades. 
And second, the lost brothers were reconciled to their father. In God's wisdom, he's kindly put these stories in the Bible to teach us the historical pattern of redemption that Jesus would fulfill by his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus redeemed us to restore us, to reconcile us in both of those directions, to one another and to God. And we're going to explore today then our need for that kind of reconciliation through this story and how Jesus is the answer uh, in two points. Point number one is fig leaves and trees, and point number two is God and sinners reconciled. So let me pray for the Spirit's help. Father, it's your word, uh, your people, your church, um, your king that we worship. And we ask you, knowing you are full of steadfast love and faithfulness, to pour your spirit out upon us now and illumine Christ in our hearts and make him great. And help us to love him more and follow him more closely. In the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So the children of Israel are now, by the end of Genesis, they're now not in Canaan, they're in Egypt, right? And throughout Genesis, we've been getting these little breadcrumbs that are suggesting to us that when we think Egypt, we should also be thinking about the Garden of Eden. Not that Egypt is the ideal place, a paradise to go to. In fact, the idea that we want to go back to the Garden of Eden as as our kind of golden age of the past that's not how the Bible leaves the garden in our minds, is it? The Garden of Eden is the place that we've been exiled from. It was the place stained by darkness when sin and death and deception entered the world. God doesn't have Garden of Eden planned for us in our future in Christ. He has something far better planned. So we're not going back. But when we, we look at the well-watered, garden-like setting of Egypt, we're supposed to be thinking about the well-watered garden in Eden. And that's where humanity first realized and recognized our need for what we're talking about today, reconciliation. So you can flip back to Genesis 3 if you like. In Genesis 3, well, 2 and 3, God had told Adam not to eat of one specific tree in the garden. We all know that story. We all know how that went. They did it anyway. And when they did that, it's like a the fabric of reality was torn open and sin and death entered the world. And from that moment, we would all be born into the debtor's prison of our mother and father. So here's what happened. Look with me at verse 6 in chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's the first thing. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's the second thing. Their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They felt shame. Conflict was created between humans where there was first perfect peace and harmony. And conflict was created between humans and God. 
So the first thing they did is they sewed fig leaves together to hide their nakedness from each other. Humans were driven apart. And then the second thing they did is they ducked into the trees to hide from God. And from that moment on, we have been born in need of reconciliation, horizontally and vertically. So think back to our story of um, Joseph and Judah in Egypt, that point where we dropped down into the story. Aren't they all hiding? The brothers are hiding their betrayal of Joseph to the father, right? Remember, they had this whole web of deception. They, they ripped his robe and dipped it in goat's blood and sent it back and said, a wild animal has torn him. So the brothers are hiding. There's, you know, Judah is hiding at one point from what he does with Tamar. Joseph is still in disguise. He doesn't even let them know that he speaks their language. Joseph's hiding. Everyone's hiding. And then to make that worse, the rifts have been driven between the brothers and the father. See, it's not just that there's relational tension. It's that in, in the father's eyes, Joseph was dead. He had been completely taken from him. And now he says, Benjamin is lost. And as far as we know, Simeon is still in jail. The father has been bereft of his children. The whole thing is in need of reconciliation. And Egypt had just become another garden with a stain on it. Everyone's hiding. And church can become a garden of hiding too. And we don't want that to be true, but it is. It can be so easy to put on our Sunday clothes of fig leaves and hide from each other. And then we'll all be isolated and alienated together. What's worse than that? Wrongs done to us, they fester when we hide, and they sow seeds of bitterness in our garden, so to speak, that dig down roots and choke out the life and don't let go. And then wrongs done by us grow like mold in the dark and thrive where the light can't reach until we walk around just pretending and utterly in hiding. We hide from one another. And we do it here. And it's so easy to hide from God in the trees of our tradition too, right? We know if we do our daily quiet times and we go to church on Sundays and we serve once a week and whatever, then maybe this distance I feel between God and I will go away. Maybe the shame that I feel for everything I've done will just dissipate or maybe I can just sleep at night. It may feel polite and genteel when we hide like that from God, but in fact, sin puts us at war. And it's, it's messy, like war always is. It puts us at war with one another, even though we smile and pretend like that's not true, and it puts us at war with God. And what we need most in all the world is real peace, the peace of reconciliation. You all know the difference between an argument, especially if you're married, you know the difference between an argument having a truce and you and your spouse being reconciled, don't you? Reconciliation brings with it a sweetness, a nearness, right? 
I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. That's reconciliation. That's what we're after. So that, that takes us to point number two. God and sinners reconciled. I heard on the news the other day that uh, the United Nations gathered together and called for a ceasefire in, between Israel and Gaza. And so since October 7, there has not been a, an ounce of peace in that stretch of the world. Not one ounce. The stories are horrible. But that goes back into the mid-20th century and actually goes back into the 6th century and earlier. Maybe even back to Genesis. There hasn't been peace there. And is a ceasefire really what we want? Is that enough? It's certainly not. December 24th, so a week from today in 1914. <laughs> went backwards. December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1914. The Belgian front during World War I. Belgian and German troops are engulfed in trench warfare. Some of the nastiest war the world has ever seen. Horrifying. But on Christmas Eve, the Belgian soldiers looked over and saw fir trees sticking up above the trenches with little decorations on them. And one soldier heard another soldier in a hoarse, war-torn voice singing Silent Night in their native language. And they began to join in together. And one German soldier was reported to shout out from the trench, we no shoot, you no shoot. And they ventured out and they sang Christmas carols and they exchanged little gifts of tins of sardines and chocolate. And they played a game of football, <laughs> soccer. Um, until uh, Boxing Day, um, just a few days. And then they turned around and for those brother humans that they were looking each other in the eye and exchanging gifts, then they, they pulled the trigger and resumed slaughtering each other, lobbing mustard gas into the trench. Is a truce what we really want? Jesus did not give his life as a ransom to broker a truce or a ceasefire with God. Yeah, it's not enough. If all we want is for hostilities to cease so that we can just live an, a life uninterrupted by Jesus. As Flannery O'Connor put it, the, the surest way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. So we just start living a good life and then Jesus will leave us alone. That's not what we want. We want the righteousness of Christ. We want to be fully alive. We want to be free. We want joy. We don't want a truce. We don't want a ceasefire. If Jesus didn't come to accomplish reconciliation for you between one another and between you and God the Father, then he died for absolutely nothing. Reconciliation is not just a theory in Christ. It's not just a nice idea. It's your reality. He didn't make it possible. He did it. He accomplished your reconciliation. That means for you, if you're a Christian in this room who's trusted Jesus, received his work on your behalf, that means your to-do list to get reconciliation with God is zero. You have nothing on the list. That's amazing. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 10 through 11. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are 
reconciled, present tense. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you love and trust Jesus, it's not just possible. It's actually what's most deeply true about you. Yeah, you and the Father are okay. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Here's the brilliance of the next line in this song. So joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Look, the angels are throwing a party in heaven because God has reconciled his enemies to himself through Jesus. So joyful nations, let's go. What could be better news than that? He's done it. No more fig leaves, no more trees. We don't have to walk around in fear and darkness. Jesus accomplished what you and I could absolutely never do, and he paid the debt we could never pay, and he brought us back to the Father. Praise God. So as a Christian, and maybe you've been walking with Jesus for like an hour, or maybe it's been your entire life, this will be true of you from top to bottom. We're going to sin. We're going to stumble. There is no victorious Christian life where we achieve perfection in this mortal flesh. But the blood of Christ covers all of those sins. Everyone. And there is nothing that stands between you and God that Jesus did not die to pay for. Nothing. There is no sin that can defeat the blood of Christ. And if you trust Jesus to pay for your sins and you turn to him in repentance, then he has not just brokered a Christmas truce for you. He brought you real peace. So, no sin and no sorrow can separate you now. No sin, nothing you do, nothing done to you can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Paul says it. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could he be more thorough with that list? Name a thing that doesn't fall in that list. Nothing can separate you. So by God's grace, if we can start to get our our heads and our hearts around that reconciliation that we have in Christ, then our our gardens of hiding can be flooded with light and the fruit of the Holy Spirit will begin to grow in our branches by his grace. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't we want those? (laughs) Don't we want to be people marked by that kind of life? It doesn't come through hiding. In fact, hiding is stunting the growth of that fruit. It's following the world's work. Hiding is just a concern for safety, isn't it? Right? Why did they hide from God in the trees? They were afraid for their own well-being. I'm concerned for my own safety. And Jesus says to us at the cross, I'm more concerned for your safety than you are. And now he did it, and we have nothing to fear. So the shepherds, watching their flocks by night, 
you know, when the, the Bible says hosts, it means armies. That's what that word is, right? Hosts is just a softening of it. Um, unless you're a Lord of the Rings fan, then you can think of like hosts of orcs marching, and then, then you get the idea. The shepherds, the skies were torn open, and the army of heaven was there. And it says they were afraid. Talk about an understatement. That's why angels, most of the time when they show up in angelic form, their first words are what? Fear not. Do not fear. You only have to say that to somebody who's quaking in their boots. Jesus was brought into this world with the words, do not fear. We don't have to hide. We don't have to look out for our our backs anymore. He's got our back. So let's not settle for ceasefires. Don't point to the cross and broker a truce with God. Not when full reconciliation is accomplished. And don't settle for anything less in your relationships either. I know what Christmas is like. And I know what it's like with family, maybe some distant relatives, maybe parents, whatever, around the tree. And you're like, can we all just get along for one day? Don't settle for that. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I want to kill the hostility. Don't you want that in our body? Don't you want this church to be known as the place you can go and get reconciled because the blood of Christ covers all. And that he, like, if he reconciled you to the Father, what reconciliation between your brother or your sister is off the table? Jesus created in himself, Paul says, one man in place of two. In other words, Jesus is in the business of fixing broken relationships. In the words of Dr. Ortland. He's a professional. You can trust him. He's good at it. So now comes the practical bit. How do we practice reconciliation with the Father? Believe that it's true. He's done it. Faith doesn't look like this um, quantity of energy power that you have to grow in or get supercharged up to feel intimacy with God. It's not like that. If you can just, if you have the merest faith to just hear Jesus say, I've done it for you. And you say, okay, because I can't. Then you are reconciled to the Father. That's it. So now how do you get reconciled to one another? Um, One of my favorite scholars uh, who studies Genesis named Derek Kidner, he helps here. So from Genesis 50, uh, we're going to read a portion of Genesis 50 in a moment. We read about Joseph's brothers being afraid of him. So their father dies, 
after all that reconciliation, and they realize that they think maybe Joseph's been nice to us all this time because of dad, but now he's gone. Who's going to broker this truce? So Kidner points out in this passage three crucial things for our reconciliation with one another. So let me read Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. They couldn't even go themselves, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. In other words, dad says, be nice to us. They said, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He hated truce. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I love that passage. So here's your three steps for reconciliation with your brothers and sisters. Step number one, trust God to put things right. Step two, trust that he has a plan even for the worst things that have happened to you. And step number three, you move toward the person with affection and compassion and sincerity and forgiveness. You take a step toward them, not away from them. Now, this is crucial, so I'm going to repeat it, and I'm going to explain. The first step is to trust God to put things right instead of taking things into your own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And instead of avenging yourself of wrongs, you what? You bless your enemy, you pray for them, you love them. You feed them when they're hungry. You give them cups of water when they're thirsty. Because God has it in hand. And by turning the cross, the greatest evil in human history, into the greatest good of all, God proved that there is nothing you cannot trust into his hands to put right. Not one thing. Two. Well, let me pause. That's what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He means that when you trust the evils done to you to the hands of God, he will make it right in such a way that you will say, this is good. That was worth it. I bet you've got something in your life that you don't think you can say that about, that it was worth it. And I promise in Christ one day you will. So in conflict, be humble rather than right. Right? Win souls, not arguments. Everything is working for our good in Christ. Two, second step. Trust that God has a plan, even for the horrible things that have happened in your life. Joseph said what you meant for evil, God meant for good, which means that there's one action, right? The betrayal 
of Joseph by his brothers, but there are two wills acting upon that action. There's what the brothers meant, and then there's the sovereign, powerful will of God and what God meant. The brothers did evil. God did good on the same action. Think about that for the rest of your life. When Peter was talking about Jesus being crucified, and this is in Acts chapter uh, 3, I think, Peter said two things. He's preaching. He's a good preacher. And he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says to the Jews, you put Jesus to death. And then just sentences later, he says, Jesus was delivered up to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of the Father. They meant the action for evil. God meant it for good. Evil and suffering never, ever get the last word in your life in Christ. It's in the hands of your Father. Step three, instead of repaying evil for evil, instead of recoiling away from somebody, take a step toward them. Take three. Move toward them. You see Joseph's warmth. They came trembling. He could have hated them. Frankly, he should have hated them. They were horrible. But it says he comforted them. He spoke tenderly to them. Because if those first two points are true about what evil and wrongdoing is, like what God does with, uh, with his hands and those things, then we can let go of all the fear and we can move toward even our enemies with love and compassion and forgiveness and actual real affection. So as we conclude then and move toward the Lord's Supper, first of all, that phrase, wonders of his love that we sang this morning and wonders of his love. This is one of the wonders of his love. Don't lose wonder that you and the Father are okay. You're more than okay. And don't lose wonder and courage and bravery and humility when you encounter conflict with your brothers and sisters. There's one more thing we need to address. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, against you, right? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So if you're here today having realized now that you've wronged a brother or sister, that they have something against you, frankly, it might not even be a real thing, right? It doesn't say, and they're right. If someone thinks that you've wronged them, it honors Christ to make that your top priority to reconcile because Jesus died and you have nothing to fear and you don't have to look out for your pride anymore. You don't have to look out for any of that. So if you're in that position and I've been in that position, there's no shame in being in that position. I strongly suggest you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper today. And I want to tell you, no one's looking around the room doing a head count or judging or being critical about who's taking and who's not the supper. We don't do that here. But I would encourage you to refrain. Deal with your broken relationship first. Follow Christ in humility and then trust yourself to God. But don't, 
don't bring an offering to the Lord while you're hiding behind fig leaves. First John chapters one and two, we talked about it with the kids. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, forgives us of all sins. And whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The light of the world himself is the one who died. The light was put out to reconcile you to God and to reconcile you to you. Not to broker a ceasefire. So let's live in humility toward one another and entrust ourselves to God and walk in the light of reconciliation and honesty. Let's pray now and prepare our hearts for the table. Christ, we praise you for the costly work you have done to redeem us from sin and slavery and give us life. And we praise you for the costly work you have done to reconcile us to you, to the Father, and to one another. We thank you that we have the Spirit of God in us. We thank you that we have cleansing and forgiveness. And we ask now that you will convict us of sin and righteousness and justice. As we prepare our hearts for this table, help us to eat in a worthy manner and receive grace from you. As we remember that we didn't pay for our sins and you moved toward us.